Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we're doing something a little different and talking our way through the Oscars that are coming up. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And between the two of us, Adam and I have seen all the nominees for Best Picture this year. Some of them we've both seen. And today we just want to talk through them a bit, what we liked, what we didn't like so much, and kind of what movies we think might be useful for folks in ministry right now. That's going to be the bulk of our show, though we still will do our usual postludes at the very end for one little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading or watching or following. So Adam, let's get right into it. Where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with just movie watching in the year of pandemic. Uh, I, I want to know from you, like how that was. I mean, for we we ought to mention that this year for movies has been as odd as it's ever been. Um, in part because movie business is having its model upended by the fact that people don't go to theaters, and so and not to mention the fact that like really important historic theaters are closing. I mean. Alamo, where you are, is is seeing some significant changes. The ArcLight, which is um, yeah. home to some of the very best theaters in Los Angeles, the, the ones that, like, if you really want to go see a movie, you go to the ArcLight because you're assured that not only picture and sound quality are going to be great, but you're going to have other people who really love movies there. Um, I think I'll remember this year more for what COVID did to movies than for the actual movies themselves. Uh, and I think also we're gonna get a bunch of pandemic movies in the years to come. And <laughs> that, you know, this is tend to this tends to be how Hollywood works, where like some big thing happens in culture, and then three years hence we we start to see a bunch of movies that come out about it. <laughs> but for you, I mean, what was it like? What was well, tell me this. What was the last movie you saw in the theater? I believe the last movie I saw in the theater was the Margot Robbie Harley Quinn movie. Uh, <laughs> the Unbearable Lightness of Being or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah the ridiculous like title. That. Which which I, is, I actually sort of enjoyed that movie. Um, that, that movie was sort of a, 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 a perfect example of from my experience of the year, which is there's a movie that... I was excited to go see in a theater because it created the event of going to the theater. It gave me an excuse to go sit there with other people and drink a beer and watch a movie. And I was very happy to do so. And the movie was sort of surprising to me. It, it was, I think the experience, my enjoyment of it was far better in the theater than it would have been if that movie had dropped immediately to HBO Max streaming. And I was like, am I really going to watch this? Which is kind of how I feel right now about Godzilla versus King Kong. Um, which is like a thing I could go watch for free, you know, separate from the subscription fees I pay. But because it's so accessible and doesn't ask anything of me, I actually don't really feel like it and don't want to. I put it on for five minutes and was like, I'm bored of this. I don't want to do it. <laughs> I did the so, same thing. <laughs> so I, I, 
my experience of pandemic movies is actually that I have spent more time seeking out and watching more interesting artistic things mm-hmm. um, and not being as interested in Godzilla versus Kong or Wonder Woman 1984 or some of the big tentpole stuff that has attempted to go directly to streaming. And I think that's created some space in, for example, the best picture category for some really interesting things to emerge that might not have found bandwidth in other years. Um, I think some of the movies in this category were going to be there no matter what, their historical inevitabilities. Um, but some of them, I, I'm not sure whether they get oxygen in a year where more tentpole stuff is still coming to the theaters. And so that, while I grieve the communal space and, you know, I'm going to head back to a theater as soon as I possibly can, uh, and I'll watch the dumbest thing that they will allow me to oh, see. Oh, yeah. I'm also really grateful for some of the artistic voices that have come through in all of this. And I I think, you know, the movies we've got here to talk about are are part of that. And I don't think we can divorce that particular conversation from the the diversity of not just subject matter, but of filmmakers and cast here. I I think um, you're right. The movies and where they come from and how they're covered by media um, revolve around these tent poles, right? Like when you don't have Marvel movies, it means that like there is a vacuum that has to be, and that attention is going to go somewhere. And, um, and I'm grateful that it did go to a lot of these movies that, as you said, wouldn't likely have received attention. And one of those is a movie that I didn't actually really like that much, but we'll talk about it a little bit of like the promising young woman or promising young woman, which I think um, was able to gain an an audience. And I'm glad that people have watched this movie Um, in part, because I think there, there was just opportunity for it to slow burn in a really slow way that it would have been unusual in any other year. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So let, I mean, let's get into our list. Where do you where do you want? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's let's start at the bottom. I, <laughs> maybe this is the way should, that we, should we talk start about with the ones this? That, are, that we're going to get nominated no matter what had ever happened. In the, I mean, but, I, I feel but are like, very good. I, I feel like <laughs> there's no way that. Aaron Sorkin and Charles Chicago 7 doesn't get nominated for Best Picture in virtually any version of Hollywood. And I feel even stronger about that statement for David Fincher and Mank. I mean, I feel like those movies were just yeah, those in- are the two. In- inevitable no matter what. Those are what. the two. And I, you know, I think that those are the two that we probably thought the, lo- the least about. Right? Which is to say, like, eh, okay, let's talk about this, I guess. Yeah. Um, they, they don't they don't seem to have a depth that, that maybe these other movies do, or, and I want to talk about this a little bit later, the, the sort of hunger that the other ones do. The other ones like have, have, have a hunger of the filmmaker behind them in the ways in which Mankin's Trial of Chicago 7, I, I just didn't feel like we did. So let's start with Chicago 7, you start. Yeah, so this is Aaron Sorkin's historical courtroom drama about the trial of the organizers of the anti-war protests that counter-programmed the 68 Chicago Dip Convention. Um, you know, to go back to a, a, 
an analogy I've used on the show repeatedly. This is not the best movie on the list. It might be the most movie on the list. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I, I come from this as a, as a as a, at various moments as Sorkin defender and apologist. Uh, I'll, uh, to me, uh, on this yeah. show. Um, and I, yes. um, but this, this one I didn't find to be ultra compelling. Um, the, the, the history, the events are awful and terrible. And of course they have all this kind of resonance with um, where we are with public protest and Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it also kind of brings out, I think, you know, Sorkin has at, at his worst tendency is is sort of soapboxing, and in this particular case, it feels like him soapboxing um, at radicals uh, for not doing protest right, in, in a way that I think just kind of misses the mark um, for our moment and and I, I arguably for for his as well. Um, I, I also say that I find Sorkin much more compelling as a writer, despite what I've just said. I find his writing much more compelling than his directing. And I think this movie, and, and I'll say this about a few movies on this list, I think it just needed a little bit better editing. I think it jumps in some unfortunate ways. I think it um, doesn't cohere in some formal ways that took me out of it. Uh, so, yeah, it did, yeah, and I think did. I think part of that is the the acting too. I mean, I, I don't think that there's a great performance in any of these in the in the movie, and that's not because these people can't act, right? Like that that's the there's a part of me that wants to lay that at Sorkin's feet, and maybe I'm not being generous enough, but I I think there's a story here, and there is a there is a courtroom drama here, but this felt very run-of-the-mill and very typical I like nothing in the genre changed that much right yeah yeah and and you know I think the history here is really important and so as we think mm -hmm. about the usefulness of this film uh I I, I struggle a little bit because I, I want us to be able to tell the story of that movement and that time, it's super critical that we're able to do that in ways that bear usefully on the moment at hand. I'm just not sure this is the, the, the text that does that as well as potentially some others. Um, I would say if you want to see a great historic courtroom drama set against our current racial moment, what you ought to do from 2020, and I'm going to actually be a little bit of a broken record on this, is go to, <laughs> is go to Steve McQueen's Smallpox Collection and watch Mangrove, which is obviously mm -hmm. set in London. It's not an American story, but the, that is a courtroom drama, the first of the um, Steve McQueen Smallpox. We talked about the second one, Lover's Rock, on this show a few months back. And for the record, I think what we're doing right now is talking about all the best pictures of 2020 that are not named Lover's Rock. But the mangrove is a better version of the trial of Chicago seven by about a thousand miles. And so th that's where I would send folks to do some of the similar work. It's got a sure hand. It just, it, and it seems to, it understands its characters and what it's trying to say in a way that like Sorkin's love of words sometimes gets in the way of story. And, um, 
And I'm, I'm just not sure he's, he's found the narrative through of, of this movie yeah. in a way that was at least compelling to me. Um, and then it just, and this is like, this is real movie nerd stuff. I just didn't think it looked good. Like I, like the, the photography of it just kind of irritated me. And I'm going to say like the photography of Mank also irritated me, but, um, but at least I understood where that was going and it had, it had some deafness to it. This just like, I don't know, yeah. kind of graded on that. Well, let's, let's not spend too much time on the ones we oh, weren't super compelled by. Um, and so let's, let's talk about Mank. We're, we'll make the um, social network pivot here from my, one of my favorite movies <laughs> from its writer to its director. So now we've got David Fincher's biopic uh, and you watch this one too. Tell me about it. Yeah. So this is the biopic of Herman Mankiewicz during the writing of Citizen Kane. And um, like Citizen Kane, it has a sort of nonlinear way of telling its story. It goes from flashback um, to early in Mankiewicz's career to late in his career when he's, um, he's producing what many can uh, believe to be his his sort of magnum opus, which is the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Um, in the midst of it, you get to meet all of the old important old old Hollywood um, important people. Uh, foremost of which uh, is uh, uh, Marion Davies and her lover uh, William, uh, not William, yeah William Randolph Hearst. So. This is a really personal movie for David Fincher. It's it's a movie that was written by his father and is a movie that was um, really inspired by a, a, an important piece of film criticism called Raising Kane by Pauline Kael. Um, that is one of those pieces that tried to unearth amid a studio system where credit wasn't always given to people for the important work that they did. Um, that tries to unearth the value and the per, um, and the gifts of Herman Mankiewicz, among others, to films during the golden age of movies. I you watch this movie and you get the sense that David Fincher is compelled by this age, and Hollywood loves nothing more than to tell a story about Hollywood uh, and. It's almost cliche to even say that nowadays. It's like that's becoming the cliche as Hollywood continues to make more movies about Hollywood. I enjoyed this movie, but I had to enjoy it, Matt, pretending like I was 25 years old. <laughs> Which is, there is a moment like in, if, if, if you love movies and you sort of are reared on them, then you go and you start to find movies that were created before you were born and you start to get into film history. And I think you and I had a, had a similar trajectory in, in our lives and you find something like Citizen Kane and you begin to sort of plumb the depths of how important and influential that movie is. And then everything that went into it and you start to realize the sort of the way the studio system worked and how unjust that was but also who these people were and how valuable they were and like how, who Louis B. Mayer was and um, and his influence on uh, on MGM but also Irving Thalberg and like these old names that sort of are spoken 
with in sort of hushed tones for their contribution to this industry that we love. I think on the one hand, Fincher is paying homage to all of that. On the other hand, he's trying to take a flamethrower to it to recognize that like, like that true creative genius has been squashed more times in Hollywood than it has actually been raised up. Um, at the end of the day, I left, I watched it. And I was like, that was fine. Yeah. <laughs> that was fine. I, I, I quite like David Fincher. He's not a tender filmmaker and this is about as tender as you're going to get this is Benjamin Button, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I, yeah, I thought, I thought this was, fine um i I, there's a there's a timeliness that's missing here where i i'd maybe i'm just wasn't in the mood for a movie about how hollywood tries to take on the world i mean there's a theme here of like (laughs) citizen kane is going to be the piece of hollywood art that takes down william randolph hearst and therefore ushers in um, some progressive utopia, which, you know, spoiler alert, didn't happen. Socialist utopia, right? led by Upton Sinclair, of all people. Um, it's a very, it's a convoluted movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, and so I, I, I when Hollywood casts itself as the um, vanguard of the revolution, I, I'm, I'm just not convinced. And this this was one of those where it's a, it's a little close to that for me. Um, mm-hmm. And... Then the 25-year-old in me also just didn't feel like Fincher went for it formally as much as I wanted him to. <laughs> so, like, there's a weirder version of this movie where you're saying, like, part of the making of Citizen Kane is that Orson Welles and his tech crew are inventing whole new ways to use lenses yeah. and lighting and creating depth of field and possibilities for shots that literally did not exist the week before they invented them. And which, which truthfully, like this movie leaves a lot of that out and sort of lays the genius squarely at the feet of Herman Mankiewicz here when like that movie, like part of its genius is in its visual storytelling that has nothing to do with the yeah. script. And I, and I felt like every once in a while, Fincher was sort of, you know, he films in black and white, you see the old Hearst Castle stuff. It's like, he's trying to sort of pretend like the movie is taking place in the world of Citizen Kane, but, I, but, but he doesn't push the camera far enough for me. It's not as weird visually as I want it to be. So yeah, there's a- Is it too digital? Yeah, it's too digital. Um, the, the lenses yeah. are too conservative. It's like, well, if we use the gray filter, then it will look like an old movie instead of pushing it as far as I think I would like. And if he had done that, then this ends up being like a weird art piece that four people watch. But I would have been one of those four people. So like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm admitting yeah. that that does not make this film more palatable, but it makes it more interesting to me. So I, I 100% agree with that. There's a part of... There, yeah, the 25-year-old in me wants him to, like like he said, I like to be weirder. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's pretty conventional um, for Fincher. Uh, that said, I, I think Gary Oldman is great in this movie. It's, it's a, he's just a real joy to watch perform. Um, I, the first time I ever became aware um, of Gary Oldman was The Fifth Element where I was like, who is that person? Where he plays the villain. Yeah. <laughs> and he's he's almost always 
invariably bringing something to the table, right? Um, that was that's fantastic. Uh, Amanda Seyfried does a wonderful job yeah. with Marion Davies. Like I, I didn't know she had it in her when I watched Mean Girls, right? Like right. I, like she's 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 great. She's and I think that she showed range in here that I wasn't aware of. And there is a the lovely scene of those two walking around the the castle grounds. Yeah, that is that is magnetic. It's really really good. It is. It is why Fincher is one of the most important directors of the last 30 years. Yeah. He's, it, 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 it is a technical achievement. It is a acting achievement. And I'm sure they did it 7,000 times per Fincher's policy about all of this yeah. stuff. But it is fantastic. I also have to say, Matt, I'm a Hearst Castle super fan. This is what most people don't know is that I've been to Hearst Castle probably a dozen times which is weird um which is weird i've been to hearst castle when they have actors come and dress up in period dress at night and you walk through as if they are having a dinner party are you sure you didn't just stumble into a david Fincher filming session of some kind (laughs) it's very weird but i have been fascinated with that place since i was like eight years old and have been there many, many times. So I, there was a particular delight of watching them and being like, I've been in that room. Sure. I'm sure it was a set, sure. but I was like, I'm, I've been in that room. Oh, I know where they are. Oh, I know that pool. Like it, there, there was something that, there. And I did appreciate the scenes around the dinner table um, where Gary Oldman got to sort of chew on things. Sure, yeah, it's th- there's fun moments in it, um, and I, and I'm also sort of glad that maybe Fincher got this out of his system and now he can go make Panic Room Two or something like that. You know, like, <laughs> he needs he needs to go make something oh, with a little bit less thought in it for a while. He needs to underthink something next. Just make some, just make a genre pick and go in that direction for a while. Yeah, Gone Girl Two. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next one. Um, Sound of Metal. You watched it. I haven't seen it. So tell me what I need to know about this this movie. um, Sound of Metal was my favorite movie of the year until I saw a few of the other things on this list. It is exceptionally good. um, And, you know, it could win, could justly win Best Picture any year it wanted to in my book. This is a Darius Martyr's breakout film. It's a, um, he co-wrote and directed it. It stars Riz Ahmed as a heavy metal drummer who experienced this sudden hearing loss. his character is also um, an addict, and so he has to make his way to a recovery center, particularly for deaf recovering addicts. Um, I loved this movie so much for two big reasons, and I, I don't want to spoil a lot of plot, um, but first, I, I love this movie because of the thematic ways in which it asks questions about what healing means. Um, uh-huh. Riz Ahmed's character, Ruben, is he struggles with his deafness. He fights against it. He wants to get surgery to repair it. Uh, he 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 is is raging against the the dying of the light there uh, to mix my senses. Uh, and he he finds himself against a backdrop at this recovery center of people who who don't believe that deafness is a problem that needs to be solved. And, and that tension is so beautiful and so revealing 
and I think theologically really critical for us as we think about what healing looks like in the gospel stories that we tell, the ways in which ableism shows up in our churches. I think there's a lot here for just general conversations about ability, particularly for those of us who are in parish ministry. The other reason I love this movie is because of the formal mechanisms of it. Um, the, the, the sound editing in this thing is remarkable because of the ways that it asks you to, to, to hear a scene from the perspective of someone who is undergoing hearing loss. Admittedly, there's, there's no way to exactly replicate that, but what they do with distortion, um, what they do by basically killing treble sounds at moments and just letting sort of bass rumbles happen, um, they, they, they restrict a lot of your ability to navigate the dialogue of this film in ways that as someone who can hear, uh, was incredibly powerful to me as a way of inviting me in into a sort of empathetic understanding of this character and the the place he was and where he's he's going. So I I was all over that and and I I understand that there are critiques of this film from folks who are deaf about the ways in which it 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 may sort of it the critique is that the film projects a sort of binary that either you hear or you don't and it doesn't live enough in the the in between of that. I'm I'm really open to learning and understanding more about this. But I thought, as for me as a film, for someone who is thinking about ability in the congregational settings, this was really striking and beautiful, and I found it profoundly useful. Um, and I loved it. That's what I got. Well, I I mean, I sound. I love when movies are able to use the medium in a new way to tell the parts of the story that you would never conceive could be told that yeah. way. And I mean, sound design is an overlooked way to, to think about that and um, that they spent so much time trying to conceive of sound design that might aid in telling the story sounds really amazing. Yeah, this is a film where like, if your choices of watching it are on a television screen with TV speakers or on your phone with a really good pair of headphones plugged into them, watch it on the phone with the good headphones. Like pick the experience of this that will give you the best sound sound design of it. Cause that's where huh. this film really, really shines. And if and when it wins like the best sound editing, best sound design Oscars, I know there are a few categories there. Few things will have been as richly deserved. That's cool. So does it give you, I mean, as you think about sort of sound design in your own sanctuary or as you do Zoom, do you, do you, has, what is, has it, can, has it inspired any, any ideas? It should. Um, I'm not sure that it has quite yet, but I mean, I, I it, it absolutely should. And the, the um, and I think it should be the part of any church's conversation about just the, the ways in which all of our senses are involved in worship and the ways in which worship ought to appeal to all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's not a conversation I've had a lot with, yeah. with folks. I mean, we might have a conversation about how to involve senses more like the, a fuller spectrum of, of sensory experience in worship, but 
drilling down into each particular sense and the range of how that sense can can be engaged, I think would be really fruitful. If if only that they're also linked, right? Like that that sound and feeling could could come together. In in our in our church, we use we make use of the organ a lot, but and that may be really valuable because of the 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 range of volume that can be projected. But I find myself kind of longing for something percussive mm. because there's a there my body feels mm-hmm. that in a way that it doesn't when I'm listening to an organ that is effectively a woodwind. Um, so in in what way is like percussion not simply contemporary worship, but also a way to affect people's experience in a positive way? Yeah, I, I think those are all the sorts of, you know, if, if your church is anywhere near having those conversations, this is a good film to um, use as a reflective touch point. Um, and, and, and it was similar for me, although with a very different kind of incapacity, um, was, was, it, was a similar for me to a movie that I did not expect to like, um, that I kind of made you watch. Kind of made me watch. <laughs> um, it would be sort of I drew the short straw to watch, which was the, which was the father, which is Florian Zeller's adaptation of his own play, uh, which stars Anthony Hopkins as a man dealing with his emerging memory loss, and Olivia Coleman as the daughter attempting to walk alongside him. I have a very strange relationship with this film now. I did not enjoy it in any way. Um, because it is a horror movie about memory loss, and I um, don't like horror movies. It's not a doesn't act like a horror movie, but this is a horror movie. Um, so, and I don't like horror movies, and I don't like memory loss. So, I didn't want any part of this. I didn't want to be watching it at the time that I was watching it. I, I had the like I'm holding my eyes over my my hands over my eyes relationship with this thing. That being said, this is an astounding film. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of praise out there for Hopkins' performance, which, yeah, I mean, he's Anthony Hopkins, and this is a role he, <laughs> he knows what he's, what he's doing. doing. This is a role he can chew, and it lets him rave at times, and it lets him break at times. And yeah, he's amazing, as is Olivia Coleman. But there's two Oscar winners, right. right? Like they know what yeah. they're doing. But but it's yeah. the structure of this thing that not that I did not know was coming, and is an amazing gift because. Just like the way Sound of Metal asks you to f- uses its sound design to f- help you empathize with its main character, this movie uses its screenplay to put you in his perspective. The reason it's a horror movie is that you're never entirely sure what is really happening. You, it, it opens with one scene from his perspective and then the next scene from his perspective and those two scenes directly and instantly contradict one another. They cannot both be true. And from that moment forward, you do not know which characters in his life are real, which ones are memories of some before time, which ones are imaginations. You do not know what is actually happening. And it it, it, at times, the scenes even loop back on themselves. So a scene will start in the middle of a conversation, 
that conversation will work its way around. And then five minutes later, they circle back to the dialogue that the scene began with. And you have this like, wait, didn't I already see this part? Did I press rewind by mistake? No, actually the movie's just asking me to exist inside the super unstable memory of its main character. And that is a powerful and profound experience. And based on the play, and I think the play in some ways could be even more compelling. There's not a lot of like fancy directing here. This is not uh -huh. most directing by any way. This is least directing. Um, but I, I still, this is a movie that is gonna haunt me a little bit. Um, and I think it's potentially very useful for um, in ministry context, I mean, we have so many children and parents navigating this moment, right? That how to take care of the parent whose, whose mind is not what it was. And I, I don't know that I would cue this movie up at a church meeting, but I think watching it is probably good pastoral care training, um, even though it's yeah. going to be super triggering for anyone who's been anywhere near moments like this. So yeah, as, as much as I am uh, surprised by myself of it, I'm, I, I really did appreciate this movie a lot, even though I hated every minute of watching it. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it like, those times where movies can be, they're not didactic, but they are learning opportunities, but it, you know, it's a, it's bitter. Yeah. It's just a bitter way and a painful way to learn. Like learning can be quite painful at times. And yeah. um, it sounds like, like something like that was going on. I, I, yeah, I wonder if, if this has a place in a, in a pastoral care curriculum where, where you, you're just trying to stoke empathy, not just in the, for those who are experiencing memory loss, but the caretakers of them as well. Right. I feel like every time I've seen this, relationship on screen i've seen it from the perspective of the caregiver mm -hmm. and we're asked to be like how is this person supposed to cope with someone who is so shifty or doesn't remember who they are or how sad for the son or the daughter whose parent is is losing their memory of time before and it's it's the protagonist yeah. is the caregiver and in this case that this is a bold shift to say, no, my protagonist is going to be the person who doesn't know what's happening. And you're going to follow along with them in such a way yeah. that you no longer know what's happening. Um, and, and that is terrifying. But you know what? So is the reality of it. Yeah. That sounds, uh, yeah. I might have to be in the right mood to, to choose to watch it, right? Yeah, but I, I, I mean, my headline is, this is not just Anthony Hopkins acting well. There's a lot to this thing that I thought was this was really worth my time. Um, talk to me about Promising Young Woman. Yeah, so I'm gonna talk, I, I'm gonna talk about Promising Young Woman and Judas and the Black Messiah here. You you watched um, the, the Father and Sound of Metal and then I watched these two and then, um, so Promising Young Woman, this movie, in, in some ways I don't, I don't feel particularly equipped to talk about this in part because it's a very personal film, but it is a film with vision. It's got a ton of touch and style. Um, it is directed and written by Emerald Fennell, 
and stars Carrie Mulligan, and they are all doing their job exceedingly well. The cast is filled out with people that you would recognize, largely from sitcoms of the last 15 years. Um, and there's this, a little bit of stunt casting to make some really important points about rape culture and about the worlds in which we live that leaves behind victims and the pain of those who have been affected by assault and rape. The way that it tells this story is, and the premise is a bit all over the place, but basically Carrie Mulligan as a character becomes an avenging angel on behalf of her friend who was sexually assaulted and then took her own life. Um, this can be quite triggering to a lot of people. So if that is for your for your own life, you know, maybe we want to stay steer clear of this movie, but it it comes at that particular premise with this revenge fantasy at its heart, where Carrie Mulligan will act as if she has been incapacitated by alcohol, and then some um, some man will then take her home. And right when it gets to the point where he is about to assault her, and she has not given him consent towards um, to for any any type of sexual activity, she will wake up unveil the fact that she is not drunk, and then she will um, she will confront um, these men. This takes a lot of different turns. Um, like I said, there is a deft hand here, and Carrie Mulligan is incredibly charismatic in the midst of this. This is a movie about grief and trauma and the unresolved feelings that come with loss and how those can get filtered into all sorts of self-destructive behavior. Um, a lot of people have talked about this movie as a, as a sort of fairy tale and the sort of grim sort, not the sort of 20th century version of fairy tales, but like uh, an alternate reality where these things can take place, where you have to suspend some disbelief in order to understand how everything works. Um, the movie is attractive and kind of pulls you in with that. And then it makes some story choices that I still don't understand. And that's the hardest part of this is that it it had it has real as a real sense of itself, but then it starts to get very convoluted in the last, I would say, thirty to forty minutes of the movie. Um, that said, this movie is striking a chord with folks, um, but it left me very cold at the end, and for a couple of reasons. Uh, if you want to read really good film criticism around this movie. Dana Stevens at Slate and Mary Beth McAndrews at RogerEbert.com um, drilled real deep into some, some lingering questions that they have with respect to the story. Um, and anyone who's seen this, the movie should, should read their comments. And I don't really want to spoil the end of the movie because I think that's where a lot of these questions come from. But the basic problem for me is that um, this movie doesn't really interrogate the problems that come with being someone else's avenging angel. Um, it's a deeply destructive life that has been chosen and we're not sure if we're supposed to root for this person or not. And the ways in which Mulligan is able to express her pain and this destructive behavior and some degrees of sociopathy is, is really compelling, but it doesn't land in any real coherent way and there are all sorts of people who failed to secure 
um, and support the life of a promising young woman. And then by the end of the movie, some of those same people I am supposed to understand are now the heroes who are going to like make things right. So at the beginning of the movie, it undermines this idea that anyone actually gives a crap about these people. And then at the end of the movie, I'm supposed to understand that those same people actually now do. And in that way, it gets really muddled. Um, that said, it, you know, if you were to use it, and I, I actually don't think that you probably should watch this movie in a church, but it might be valuable as you discuss what consent looks mm -hmm. like, like not, not just consent between two parties who are engaging in an, in, in an intimate relationship, but what, what consent do the dead give, <laughs> which is yeah. actually a kind of interesting question here. Um, and this is, this is a really important point that Mary Beth McAndrews brings up in her piece, which is that there is a dead person that animates all of the plot of this movie whose voice never gets really considered mm -hmm. as the person who experienced the assault. And that left her feeling very cold. And that's a, that's a worthy question to consider. I'm not sure that this movie is going to give you answers, but it might be the route to a question. So yeah, Promising Young Woman, it, it gets billed as a thriller. I, I wouldn't, it's, it's in between a lot of different genres. I don't think that there's a, an effective uh, title that you, could, that you could pin this on. It's doing a lot of different things, um, shares a lot in common with all sorts of different movies. And for that, I think it, like, I think Emerald Fennell is, is, is working out her vision and her understanding of movie making and filmmaking. And I think I, I'll be really interested to see what she does next. Um, and that, and that shares a lot with Judas and the Black Messiah, which totally different subject matter. Uh, it's a movie about Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Black Panther Party in Chicago um, in the late 60s, and about an informant, an FBI informant named Bill O'Neill, who infiltrated the Black Panthers um, and provided information to the FBI that resulted in the assassination of Fred Hampton by the Chicago PD. Right. Again, a little bit like the, the trial of Chicago 7, this is an important story, and it's an important, a story that I'm grateful is being told on film, that, 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 that people are making movies about this. And truly, I don't think even 10 years ago, a movie like this would have been made. Yeah, no way. And I know that Shaka King, who, who, who made it, had to fight in order to make it. This is a movie that kind of, it lives in between genres. It's kind of a biopic of Fred Hampton, um, but it's also a sort of political thriller. It's also got some like true crime podcast in it. Um, it it's a movie that... Um, that wants you to fall in, wants you to at least admire or fall in love with Fred Hampton because of his oratorical skills. And to that end, Daniel Kaluuya is magnetic. Um, he, I mean, he's he's cementing himself as one of the best actors of his generation. He is truly, truly magnificent, yeah. and he's very, very good in this movie. Um, he. He doesn't just have charisma. I found him most compelling in the sort of small tender moments of this movie. 
I it I think it builds itself as a movie where he gets to do this sort of bombastic preaching, speechifying, but the the work that he does um, in in the tender moments um, in in bed is actually I think his his strength. Um, yeah, I'm really excited for this one and just haven't had a chance to get to it yet. So I'm I'm yeah, you should. I really think I think people should see it. The, the struggle that this movie has is that there is another great actor in this movie, and that's Lakeith Stanfield, right. and he's he is great. And I think that I truly think he's every bit the actor of Daniel Kaluuya. And I was really interested in seeing them like work with each other. The problem was is I don't think this movie knows what it thinks of Bill O'Neill of the Judas part which is the sort of interesting theological conundrum of Christianity, which is I don't think Christianity knows what to do with the Judas part. Right. <laughs> right? I, I don't know, like given everything that we know and who this person is and like Fred Hampton died at 21. I mean, that's kind of astounding to think about, right? Like he died at 21. He was running the Black Panthers as uh, effectively a young person. So we never saw him grow old and therefore become maybe a little less idealistic or have to compromise. And right. so we have this vision of him as this sort of incendiary device that can like, that that it that was a comet that was just like burning hot all the time. We never saw the comet go out in like, in, in any real sort of way that comes with age. Um, so we get to keep the, that Fred Hampton alive. That said, we don't know what to do with Judas. Yeah. And I don't think this movie does. I, I, I think um, Lakeith Stanfield works his ass off to make it happen and to try and infuse this part with pathos and with um, a conflicted sense of self and purpose. But at the end of the day, like the Messiah, the Black Messiah and the Judas character have to they have to enmesh in some way that that like makes sense. And I don't think it ever really got there. Um, that said, I think Shaka King, he's got the goods. I, I think his intuition is all there. There's like real passion, fire. It's really good filmmaking. And the performances are incredible. Um, as for usefulness, Matt, I don't know. I mean, I think the church would be served by thinking more about Judas and Judas's purpose in this story of ours. Um, I think we edit him out a lot um, because we don't know what to do. And this isn't the first movie to try and consider that particular figure either and and its analog within history. And so maybe there's a maybe there's an adult education, you know, series that does look at Judas and like portrays him. Yeah. Because I think like Judas and Lactation of Christ is interesting, and then Jesus Christ Superstar is yeah. interesting, and and um there, there are lots of different portrayals of this particular figure. And this, maybe among those many portrayals, this would have a little bit more life. But as it's contained currently in the movie, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, as someone who hasn't even seen it, I wonder whether some of what you're describing even influenced the Academy itself as both Stanfield and Kaluuya ended up with best supporting actor nominations because the the um the voters couldn't figure out who was lead and who was supporting. It seems like then 
either or both of them have been robbed of sort of the quote unquote more prestigious nomination or to be in that actor category. And it, I, I wonder if there's, if some of the structure of the film is, is hanging out even in that, even in that consequence as well. Well, and I think we're, we're seeing this younger generation of filmmaker playing with genre, right? They, they're, they're not sticking to the genre conventions as they've been configured or handed down to them, which is really exciting actually. Yeah. Um, but it comes with some consequences, right? Because like in the end, this person who's in between is, can become a cipher for all sorts of things instead of seeking a clarity with respect to what's, what exactly the message is or the idea is. And um, there's a lot to be mined in this movie and there's a lot of really good ideas. Um, and it's really fascinating to watch, <laughs> to watch such a tender and compelling portrayal of someone who is actively a socialist, right? Like, right. Yeah. like I don't know, the last time we saw this probably Reds, you know, like it's, um, that said, it's not a biopic in the conventional sense. And there is a part of me that's like, I, I got finished and I was like, I kind of want to watch Malcolm X right now. Yeah, sure. Um, because that, 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 that was able to marry, like marry it all. Did you ever watch the motorcycle diaries? The um, yeah. biopic about the young Che coming up through South America? Yeah. Yeah, that movie was amazing. That's, that's, that movie that's is a, like a sympathetic portrayal of socialist leap, but obviously not in a U.S. context um, explicitly. Right. So it makes it maybe a little bit more palatable for our audiences. Um, All right, talk to me about Nomadland. Well, speaking of road trip movies, right? Um, no, no, <laughs> Nomadland um, is going to be my my. my of, of these, my pick for best picture. This is my this is my film of the year. Um, this is a Chloe Zhao's film about uh, nomadic workers who are navigating the kind of post Lehman Brothers, post two thousand and eight collapse um, by taking um, by uprooting and living as intentionally houseless people, um, traveling for different seasonal employment opportunities um, instead of rooting in one community. It stars Frances McDormand as Fern, who loses her job at a, um, at a factory town in Nevada, and then sort of intentionally decides to live in a van and be on the road. And she works some at Amazon, she works some at some national parks, she joins in with a whole community of folks who are doing this same thing and kind of know where the opportunities are going to be and where they can move and so she meets friends along the way some of them played by hollywood actors and some of them played by people who are living nomadic existences in the u.s right now and sort of in some cases kind of notorious characters in that particular subculture um this is not the movie i thought it was going to be i i thought it was going to be a socialist critique, an economic critique. I, I, I thought this movie was going to be, and, and, you know, I watched it against the backdrop of the Amazon union vote in Alabama over the past month and, and a lot of modern questions about workplace conditions, particularly for Amazon workers. And so you see McDormand in this Amazon warehouse and think, okay, we're, um, we're doing a kind of, 
there's, there's, there's a kind of socialist verite project happening here where we've got real people who were cast in these roles were exposing the, the harsh underbelly of American capitalism. Um, I, I was expecting like, some of the the influence of like the journalist Barbara Ehrenreich and Nickel and Dimes to sort mm-hmm. to show up here. That's that's the movie I thought I was going to get, and it, in some ways it's there. Um, though I think if you want this movie to be an economic critique, you're going to leave disappointed. Um, and I and I think I, I've seen criticisms of the film that that I think live in that disappointment. Instead, this is a movie about wanderlust. It, it is not ultimately economics that keep Fern on the road. It's, in one sense, her own wonder about the world that lies around the bend and over the horizon. And it's also about hurt and places she doesn't want to go back to. Um, relationships she doesn't want to go back to places that are haunted by ghosts and grief um and i I loved it um Mm. i'm a sucker for a road trip i'm a sucker for a road trip movie i'm a sucker for a national park i'm a sucker for driving (laughs) down a long lonely highway so there's some of this that just exists within my wheelhouse and this movie is extremely in my wheelhouse uh, the soundtrack is also astounding. There's um, none of it's original. There's some so, um, some some sort of standard song programming in there, but there's a lot of um, meditative piano soundtrack by Ludovico Ionaldi that is um, takes over this film in places. Uh, that is is also just the the underscore to this this intersecting Venn diagram of, of grief and wonder and um, longing that I, I found very compelling while it is all simultaneously printed on Frances McDormand's face at all times and the world that exists on her face in this film. I mean, and it, she's always this, right? Yeah. But <laughs> she's great. But like, the, her capacity to carry all of that in her eyes is just mm-hmm. spellbinding. So I, I, I don't know if this is the most useful film on the list. It's, it's a film about why people leave. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I could see it as an accompanying text to a number of biblical stories about journeying and about wilderness. Why would someone choose to stay in the wilderness? And that it's it's not just send us back to Egypt where there was food. It's it's sometimes people fall in love with the journey itself, right? Um, yeah, an itinerant life, yeah. right? I mean, I there's think there's something there's something here, but I I don't know that that means I think you know you would build a Christian ed curriculum about this, or I don't think it rises to the same level of kind of pastoral assist that. Sound of Metal or The Father did for me. But but yeah. just as a sheer piece of soul-grabbing beauty, this was it for me. Yeah. Well, and I think that uh, I there's a long history in the Christian practice of itinerancy, of of the of 
of the wanderlust being baked in and being called something else. <laughs> like that we justify all of that um, with some other name, but really that's what it's, that there is some, that does capture people and has captured people for a long time. You know, whether it's Desert Fathers who sort of, who left um, or whether it's, you know, circuit writers who are like going from town to town doing, uh, doing revivals or something like right. that, you know, um, we effectively have to have a gig when we arrive, but arriving is not really the point. It's, it's what happens before the arriving. That's always the thing that, that that's the draw. And I mean, and I think you and I, as people who have like steady jobs that we show up to every once in a while, that pull to be like, what I bet there's a mountain not far from here. Yeah, I mean, you know, as someone who watched this sitting on the same couch that I've been sitting on for the last 14 months, this movie was like, it was it, it, it was painfully beautiful. <laughs> like, I bet. Gosh, I'm like, just let me see a Rocky Mountain peak, right, please. Right, right. Yeah. Um. All right, last one. We've got last the last film there eight of them and the last one is uh, again a, another movie that i mean i don't think in a regular year gets the type of through attention yeah. yeah and it's the movie minari this is lee isaac chung's film um semi-autobiographical about uh, a korean american family that migrates from korea to california and then ultimately to arkansas and we we find them first as they move into arkansas in the 80s as um jacob the father tries to run a farm. Uh, I found this movie to be incredibly compelling. Um, I, I think there's a lot to mine here, even though it's a pretty spare movie. Mm -hmm. it, there aren't a lot of characters and they don't go very many places. Right. Um, it's very local um, to Arkansas and to the Ozarks. Uh, there's an, an incredible attention to detail. Um, and Really, it's a family movie. Um, and so I think different people are going to gravitate towards different relationships within the family as the thing that affected them. Uh, for me, the, the, the relationship between uh, the grandmother and grandson was to me, that was the heart of the movie. Now, I, I know Stephen Lund is getting a lot of praise for his, uh, his performance, and as well he should, he's really good in this. But I found myself most compelled um watching the 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 grand the, that maternal relationship kind of grow and form in a way that caught me totally off guard like i thought i had an understanding of what was going to happen and then it didn't right. um and it's a little ambiguous about what happens at the end and what this movie is about but at the the heart of it is just very uh, just a very tender um and thoughtful picture of a family. I think you're right to say this is this is a spare movie in some ways, with a tremendous number of overtones to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well, well said. So, I mean, stuff in the background. There's lots of stuff in the background. Husband and wife show up to run a garden. Um, it's got his name is Jacob. We're already there's already some genesis happening. <laughs> 
And there's yes. a, and so there's there's a lot of Genesis biblical overtones, not to mention a lot of explicit theology and theology church, church happening in this movie. Um, what I vibrated most with was all the Steinbeck hanging out on this movie. This 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 <laughs> has got this has got a lot of grapes of wrath and East of Eden hanging out in it. Um, and in some really beautiful ways, right? What a what a project to take the migrant story of Grapes of Wrath, um, which is a story of white people moving west to California, and in some ways invert it as a story of um, Korean immigrants moving east from California back to the American South, to the American South, to find the fertile land. Uh, and you know, it's this is not a Grapes of Wrath retell. It doesn't have the Socio socioeconomic context to it, the Grapes of Wrath does. It's not but, the scope either, but yeah. It, but, it, um, but, but it it is living in that sort of Steinbeckian place where it is both a story about Americana and a story about smaller, tender family things at the same time, like husbands and wives, like water, like plants. Um, like love, and there, and I found that really powerful and really beautiful. And I think, I think yeah. this film is gonna is gonna live for a while for those reasons. I think, I think so it too. has as much rich literary soil in it as anything else on this list. About like dreams and purpose too. Yeah. I, I, it's. <sighs> I mean, I haven't seen Nomadland, so you, you can correct me. Of these, this captures a a sense of the US that's a bit more abstract, right? Like, I, I think Promising Young Woman, Judas and the Black Messiah, Trial of Chicago 7, even Mank are dealing with real important US issues. And there's systemic issues um, about inequality in this world, uh, about injustice. And those, I, I'm grateful that movies are, are considering that. This movie, you, you think it's going to be about what it means to be Korean America right. in Arkansas in the 80s? Yeah, I kept waiting for like, and, like white people with pitchforks to show up. Like I kept waiting for this movie to, yeah. to be a movie about... Um, <laughs> about racism and prejudice in a really sort of explicit after school special sort of way what is not is not interested in that at all it's not interested in it at all but it is interested in something that is i think your reference to Steinbeck is important that is inherent to whatever description of americanness we are going to create that is available to immigrant and non-immigrant alike yeah. And, and the movie's not ignorant of like um, the, the boundaries of, of no. the race that exist in this story at all. Not at all. Um, they're, not at all. They're just done in very, very, in, 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 in smaller ways, in more intimate ways, uh, instead of being, and, you and know, it, yeah. the, the, the... There's no speech of exposition, right? right? Like that's going to sort of tell you what you need to know about how this world actually is. 
and I mean, it's, a, you know, it's the show not tell type of thing, but, but really it's, it's really intimate and you get the sense that this isn't everybody's experience, but this is their experience. And therefore it has validity when telling the stories about experiences. And I, I just, I was really moved by that. And I was moved by the ways where it inverted your expectations of stereotypical Asian grandmothers and like, and all sorts of things where I found myself being like, Oh, I, I was so sure that I knew what was going to happen here. And, and, and it didn't. And, um, and the ways in which we dream and the ways in which we want to be independent. Yeah. Like that, the it was a, it just it was a lovely and very well told story and it doesn't it doesn't work to be anything outside of itself and in that way it's incredibly self assured um i like you said i think i think this does have some life i i think this is like this and no man land are probably your like criterion collection um odds like that they're gonna they're gonna show up in that collection fairly soon. Not only because they're just beautiful, but because they they, they I think they bear rewatching. Yeah, yeah. Nomadland feels like the <laughs> this is not the, the 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 best piece of long form personal narrative nonfiction I read this year, and Minari yeah. Minari feels like. Um, an, an, a new entrant in the, the 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 canon of American novels. Yeah, um, I, I, they just have different personalities, very very different personalities. Carving out a yeah. yeah, carving out a different corner of that story and gets to tell it the way that they want to tell it. And that's I mean that's why I found it also really exciting is because a lot of these other movies they're they're trying to do new things, but they're they're fairly can conventional in their own way i just i don't know this movie had this had a different vibe to it that i hadn't seen in a long time or if at all so so and i yeah so let's do some summary then i mean i i, okay. I want to and we've probably spoiled some of these but i, I, I want to give some sunday morning matinee awards uh um among these, these okay. films uh and so let's let's just start with let's before we get more interesting, let's start with just best picture. For me, this is best picture, not named Lovers Rock, but that's you know that that that's 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 up to you. Um, but so what's your of, of these? What, yeah, what's, so what's I, I it, would be, it would be Minari for me. Though I need to go and watch Nomadland. I you know all of the all of the bookies have Nomadland winning right now, and um, and I'm fairly confident that it probably will. Um, but you're not the only one who's who's sung its praises and its its ability to um, to conjure something pretty special. So um, it's Minari with the caveat that I'm going to watch No Man Land this weekend before the awards are. Yeah. yeah, and and it's 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 No Man Land for me. But I'm you know um, if Minari wins or if Sound of Metal comes out of nowhere and pulls this, um, I, I will certainly not be disappointed at all. Um, Okay, most useful movie. Um, I, I actually think Judas and the Black Messiah might be really interesting to have a conversation around. I, it's 
it's a unique time in history. I think I would be, I'd be really interested to see how some of the questions around the socialism that is at the very heart of, of Fred Hampton's vision of the world would play in my congregation, which is pretty diverse in a lot of different directions, mm -hmm. um, both racially and ethically, but also from a class standpoint, some other places. So um, I actually think that it would be the best conversation starter in my particular context. How about you? I think for me, it's of the ones I've seen, and I, I haven't seen that one yet, but the ones I've seen, it's the father. Um, even though I kind of never want to watch it again, I think it's the most useful in terms of thinking about the pastoral care challenges related to aging and for all of these kids and their parents um, walking through this journey. I think this movie grabs something there um, that is worth um, worth our being able to bring it into conversation. Um, right. Movie you will watch the most. You know, I don't know how much I'm going to revisit a lot of these movies. Um, if we were talking about like the whole year, I don't know, Onward, the Pixar movie, right. <laughs> like, probably is the movie I'm going to watch the most. Or like, what? What's the uh, what's the Charlize Theron action movie? The Old Guard. Old I'll probably good. watch like that, that the most. Yeah. <laughs> but of these movies, uh, you know, it's a, I it might be Mank, which is kind of weird because I didn't like it that much, but it has a vibe that I could like see myself turning on and watching 25 to 30 minutes of. The, the hard thing is I, I really think like a movie like Minari that I really like just kind of bears you watching the whole thing. Yeah. And that's this bank I can like, I can dip in and watch like the, the, the drunken speech of Gary Oldman at the end that, that I, found kind of compelling. Yeah, I, I had a similar reaction. I mean, it it might be Nomadland. I could see myself revisiting that. And I think I could get to the point where I'm just watching pieces of it to watch scenery and listen to the score. There's also a version of this where the answer the practical answer is Trial of Chicago 7 because it's on Netflix and I'm like folding laundry yeah. and I'm just putting Sorkin's dialogue on for a while. Right. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So I, I, I but that, that would be a, I don't, that doesn't feel like a cinematic experience to me. It's just sort of background noise to something. All right, movie that will be remembered 10 years from now. Most remembered, I guess. Presumably, who remember all of them? Um, I, I think, like the yeah, the way that I tend to think about this is like, what's the movie that's invoked that's still part of the conversation, mm -hmm. right? Like, we don't talk about the artist right, any right, longer. Right, right. Um, I, I think, and, and really, generally, you're kind of betting on the filmmaker. Yeah, this is this feels like a category. Uh, that is in some ways a referendum on all of these breakout directors, whether it's Chloe yeah, Zhao, yeah. And I, I actually, Isaac Lee Chung, Darius Martyr, and this just that that because because Trial of Chicago Seven and Mank are not going to live as the high water marks for either of their directors. And nope. so, which of these breakout directors are we going to be looking back on and saying, "Oh, that movie was like is part of a new canon from this vision." Yeah, I, I think it's probably going to be Chloe Zhao. I just think I, I think this is going to give her every opportunity she wants, and I think she's really good. Yeah, 
I mean, she has, she made The Rider before, which I have not seen. So this is not her breakout debut. So that's my, my only hesitancy there is, you know, could Isaac Lee Chung go on to have the same decade of something? And we're talking about Minari as like a debut film and not, and yeah. not just kind of the breakthrough. Um, and, you know, at, frankly, Darius Martyr could do the same thing. We're talking about Sound of Metal as that, that, that stunning. Shocking King too. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think Ryan Coogler is an executive producer on Judas and the Black Messiah. And I think he might, I mean, he's, he could be a kingmaker in Hollywood right now that recognizes that he's going to, I think he's got the juice. I think he's good. I think he's really good. Yeah. I mean, so Fennel too, right? Like all of these, there's, yeah, yeah all of them. I mean, that's, that's, that's the exciting part about this year right. movies. I actually think. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if I were betting, I think I, I think I might bet on this category. I might bet on Minari in this category, but um, it's the, I think th th those are the stakes. All right, last one. Yeah, there's a young crop of filmmakers that are are doing yeah. something. So last one, most theologically challenging. Um, I don't know. I For me, the thing that is kind of haunting me is um, is the, the man in Minari who carries his cross down the road every mm -hmm. church for yeah. Sunday. And I, I don't really know what to do about that right now in my life. But I found him to be a really compelling supporting character in that film in a way that I was utterly not prepared for. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm still trying. He's he's kind of locked in my brain in a little bit in a way that. And if I had a problem with the movie is and maybe they don't owe him anything, but he doesn't get a he doesn't get a post -lit. Right. Um, and but I think he's I think he's integral to the movie. Yeah, I think that's a a, a really good call and and a good answer to this category. I'm I'm going to go back to the father here just because I think that as Hopkins's character unravels, you see this profound challenge to what it even means to have an identity. Um, he doesn't mm. fundamentally know who he is. And I think there's, um, I think there's a theological challenge for, for in that for, not just for pastors and ministry, but um, for how we think about how God calls us and names us. Uh, and I, and I, I think the, you know, the last, the last act of that movie is um, is unsettling to this very point. So I, I, I would that, that that's where I would leave it. Um, that was a good year, though. Like I feel it is. <laughs> it's an optimistic year. I mean, I, I don't think I love any of these movies in the same way that I love Parasite or Moonlight or some past winners, but. I feel a lot of hope. I just, I think that the stable of filmmakers in this year is really strong. And I think the, the stable of young actors and young filmmakers is incredible. And there are a lot of people who are like, like Anthony Hopkins and Francis McDormand are some of the best to have sure. done it, you know, and God bless them. Um, but my, my optimism lies in the fact that there are all of these other young people who are, I think are making really good movies. Yeah. Well, we are, 
we're going to wrap up this conversation and take a moment for some postludes in just a second. But before we do that, we want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. The latest issue features an essay by Carrie Graham, who was founder of the Church Lab and a colleague of mine here in Austin. Carrie's reflecting on all the ways that the pandemic has called clergy and churches into new kinds of risk-taking. I think the world of the way Carrie imagines the church, and so I heartily commend her reflections here to you. If you are listening to the show and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday Morning Matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt, it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's a chance to get another little preacher thought from something else that we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude? So in the middle of watching all of these artistic and, and literary films, I also found myself sucked into the most recent season of Amazon Prime's All or Nothing, which is their like sports documentary series where they spend a season embedded with various sports teams. Uh, I've never watched any of this before. I was just, um, I just run out of everything else to watch on streaming and here's something that presented itself. And the most recent season was about Tottenham Hotspur, the English Premier League team. And I was like, all right, I'll watch a documentary about about British football for, for a few episodes. And <clears throat> this is a very conventional genre uh, and a sport that I know just enough about to see all the conventions. And then you get to episode eight, of nine of this past season, which dropped in September on Amazon, in which Tottenham Hotspur are confronted with the fact that um, there's a global pandemic and everything is shutting down. And I found myself watching for the first time on screen sort of <laughs> after the fact documentary reliving March of 2020. Now, I've seen at least one feature film trying to do this, which was the um, lockdown project that Doug Lyman did with Anne Hathaway, which was <laughs> not great. Movie's garbage. <laughs> um, this, because it was um, documentary footage, uh, was real in a different kind of way. And I found myself needing a giant trigger warning around the content of the episode and thinking, <clears throat> oh, they think they're gonna be shut down for a week. Oh, they, they're, they're not sure what they're gonna do for, for scrimmage for those three days. And you're thinking, oh no, friends, this is, this is much longer than you have any imagination of. Uh, so I, I don't necessarily know whether I recommend it to you, but it is a very fascinating little bit of little corner of pop culture that's out there right now um just sort of and, and and as you mentioned at the top of the show i think the the first wave of what will be an emerging genre of narratives that walk through this year but here's one that's just pure we, we just happened to be in the room running cameras at the time uh first draft of history that i that i thought was was kind of staggering well and jose Mourinho is a character. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's a, yeah. So he's brilliantly cast as megalomaniacal yes. football coach. He is, and he is. Um, just quick tangent is it. So m one of the more important people in world football, Jose Mourinho, important 
soccer coach. Um, he, he liked to, in press conferences early in his career, call himself the special one. And so he would refer to himself as a special one. And one of my very most favorite sporting event experiences of all time is um, I had a chance to go um, as a Liverpool fan to watch Liverpool-Chelsea. I mean, this is probably 10 to 15 years ago. Um, and at Liverpool, and Liverpool waxed them. And Rafa Benitez was the... Um, was the coach of Liverpool at the time. And the whole stadium in one voice saying over and over, Rafa's the special one. Ra so there, there is a clever, there is a cleverness in British football that is unparalleled. And then you add Jose Mourinho to the mix and it's like, it's perfect drama. It's the best. I love it so much. Yeah. I, I do recommend the whole season. It was um, perfectly distracting sitting on the couch doing nothing um, programming. But that episode then, you know, veers yeah. off the road into like, oh, I don't know if I feel like reliving this right now. <laughs> what about you, Adam? What's what's on your plate? Okay, so, um, well, I have lately been reading more and more in anticipation of some things that I'd like to do uh, about the sectarian struggle of Northern Ireland for the 30 years that's generally referred to as the Troubles. Um, this is a sort of big black hole of historical understanding that I don't have. I don't know much about it. Um, and it was precipitated by a number of different things, but one of which is that there's, there is increasing riots and violence within Northern Ireland like right now in response to a number of contributing factors, including Brexit, including um, the, um, the, the Good Friday Accords that, that were signed um, in 1998. Um, and so this, this led me back into reading some of the history and getting more about it than what I knew from Patriot Games. So um, <laughs> it's like the, that's point. the extent. That it's, and it's, like it's a, a generational marker there, but a fair point. That's that's about it. And then like in the name of the Father, like I watched that movie once. Um, those about the only things that I know about that particular time. And then my wife likes the show Dairy, which is a sitcom about a girls' school set during the Troubles. It's actually quite funny. Um, so I started reading more, and I, I came across this book called Lost Lives about 3,000 people who were lost to the sectarian violence over the course of those 30 years and lost lives names them all. And, um, and part of the reason I, I started reading about it is I was reading this article by this boy um, who was the son of um, a, a British royal who was blown up on a boat. And this kid was on the boat and his twin was also on the boat and his twin died. Um, and they were talking to him about this book, Lost Lives, and what Lost Lives does is it, it organizes all of these deaths in chronological order, but then starts to tag them into in like in a number of different ways so that this man, as he was reflecting on losing his twin, in the book, it the, as it names his twin who was murdered, it tags it with another name of another twin who was murdered in another time during the Troubles. And in what it's done is it's created this whole sort of ecosphere of tragic loss of violence. 
and draws lines between them all to recognize that this is like that what had happened there was all connected to each other. A really stunning work of of kind of journalism. I'm not exactly sure what to call it. Um, but as I've just kind of been piecing through it, I'm finding it a incredibly cathartic document in its own strange way. And it made me think a lot about how, how to deal with COVID over this last year and, and, and memorializing the dead. Cause I don't, I, I don't like stationary static memorials. I find them cold, but this is something different. And there've been a lot of newspapers that have done like profiles on people who have died. Um, and those go, I think those are really positive. And to, to be able to read more of those, I think we probably do well for our ministries. But I'm looking, I, I really just kind of desiring, and this is just a longing in my own heart, something that's a little bit more cohesive and local, maybe. And so I'm wondering if there's a way in which like there a project could be created that that collates and organizes all of this so that we have a, a, a deeper sense of the loss. And that's the thing that I don't think we we can can, full, can fully sort of wrap our heads around right now. And so um, this book just kind of gave me a sense that such a project is even possible because it um, and I and I'm really grateful for it. And I'm trying now to figure out what that means in my not not just in my church, but in my local environment. And how do we how do we help people mourn here in this time? And what are the documents that we're going to have to create in order to facilitate it? So that's kind of what's on my mind. I don't really have any answers to that, but that's the question that I've been living with for the past couple of weeks. Well, it's, it's an indictment of the scope of loss as well. So if, Indeed, where the scope of loss yeah. rises to the point where the relationships can be mapped and they're, and they're not just existing in silos. And I'm, I'm thinking about that. I mean, because of the story that came out just over the last couple of days about that, um, that, that Dante Wright victim of the shooting in Minneapolis, uh, just over the weekend, uh, um, that, um, had once been taught by George Floyd's girlfriend, Courtney Ross. Mm-hmm. So that like, and, and that story is not alone. There are others emerging in the black community of like these, these victims of police shootings are not siloed. They exist in communities and the shootings rise to the level. The frequency rises to the level where Court of like six degrees of seven of Kevin Bacon style, you can begin to map out like the, the ways in which these victims have already known each other, um, which staggers under the weight of statistics, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, it's um an important way of thinking about grief and also just an important witness to the scope of loss whether in that yeah. context or in COVID or as you say, in, um, in the troubles. In, in typical fashion, Adam and I have wrapped this show with me talking about dumb sports documentaries about Tottenham Hotspur and Adam talking about deep issues of profound theological witness and grief and loss. Um, that about wraps it up for today, though. If you like this show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. 
drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band. McQueen was robbed. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.